Very often, Christmas cards contain similar printed greetings on the inside. We've all noticed that, haven't we? That there seems to be this set of not particularly varied phrases that commonly appear on the inside of Christmas cards. Isn't that right? So, over the last couple of weeks, maybe you've received a Christmas card from a Christian friend. And here's the envelope. You open it up, you look inside, and somewhere printed on that will be something like this. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace uh, to men. Or you've received a card from someone who's not a Christian and you've opened it up. There's the envelope. You open it up and somewhere printed on the inside will be something like this, the phrase season's greetings. Okay, commonly seen phrases printed on the inside of Christmas cards. Well, one other phrase that very often appears in these things is actually the announcement, the proclamation that the angels made to the shepherds in the Christmas story. Can you remember what they said? See if you can fill in the blanks. You open your Christmas cards, it's there, somewhere printed is this. Fear not, I bring you good news, good news of great joy. There is the claim from the angels themselves, the claim, the biblical claim, that the Christmas story, there is something about Christmas that is good news, good news. But what is that? You can see, I'm sure, why we have to address that question. Outside of the Christian church, but actually inside the global Christian church, do you not agree that there is, especially at Christmas, such confusion about what constitutes the good news? There is in our world today, inside, outside the church, much confusion about the gospel. Well, in recent times at St. Peter's, if you've been here for the last number of services, you'll have noted uh, that we have been looking at a number of individual verses, single verses. Have you noticed that? I've done that a couple of times. Will has done that. Chris has done that. We've been looking not at chapters of Scripture or sections of Scripture. We've been looking at just single verses. And this morning with you, if you'll allow it, I want us to continue today in that same vein. So just now, yeah, we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, but do you know what we're going to do? We're going to narrow the focus down to one single verse. One verse, and why? Because this, friends, is a verse that really does take us to the core of the good news. This is a verse that will show you and me, remind us why Christmas really is a time of good news for the people of God. So, Let's do it like this. Let's display the verse. 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. Let's read it. But before, let's, before we look at it in any further detail, join me as we ask God for his help. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that we're here. We, we do want to thank you for this uh, time of year. There is... So many distractions, Lord God. There's so much nonsense. Uh, but there is opportunity to reflect on you and your goodness to us. And we ask for your help. We ask for the Holy Spirit's work just now. 
Help us, Lord God, shed light on these great old truths, Lord, we pray. And help us to worship Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Okay, so there we have it. There's the verse. Let's notice a few things about this together, shall we? The first thing that I would uh, highlight and draw your attention to is this. What we see here is the truth of the gospel. There's the first heading. Please get it. The truth. The truth of the, the gospel. Okay, cards on the table. I love this book. I love this letter uh, of First Timothy. I find it really helpful uh, on a personal level. I find it very helpful for the, the life of the Christian church. I love it. If you love it and if you know it, you know what Paul is doing here in First Timothy, don't you? You know that he is writing to his friend, Timothy, helping Timothy to counter some erroneous teaching, like false teaching, that has begun to rise up and surface in the church where Timothy is ministering. So do you get the idea? So helping him to fight false teaching in the church in a place called Ephesus. Now, yes, you can notice to, to do this, Paul sets out something reliable. How does the verse begin? Do you notice? He says, Timothy, this saying is trustworthy. Trustworthy. But, but, but wait, what? Come on, what is verse 15? What, what, I mean, what is it? Because uh, some will say this. Some will say that what Paul is doing here in verse 15 is, is he is affirming uh, a saying that was already circulating in the Christian church at the time. Do you see the idea? As though Paul is putting all his weight behind. A, a, a saying that was already, maybe something from a creed or a pre-existing confession. Do you see that idea? Like saying uh, to Timothy, saying Ephesus, you see that phrase that you sometimes recite in church or that you say to each other about the gospel? That, that's, that's excellent, that's reliable and that's good. Some people would, would, would affirm that idea. I personally am, am not so convinced. You see, what we have in verse 15 is this. It is the first of five times in the pastoral epistles, five times where Paul draws attention to a trustworthy saying. So he doesn't just do this once. He says, this is a trustworthy saying. He says that five times in the pastoral epistles. Now, I, I think because of that, that this is not necessarily something that was circulating at the time. I think this here is original to Paul. And can you see what he's doing then? Paul is here highlighting something that was absolutely imperative and an important truth. So he, he is saying at this point, he's saying, Timothy, he's saying to, to the church in Ephesus, he's saying, you've got to get this. Like what I am about to say to you, Timothy, what comes next is essential. Yes, Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed. All of it is God-breathed. But, but this coming phrase about the gospel. This is, Paul says, reliable. This is essential. This is trustworthy. Paul is saying this, this is, this is true. Now, of course, you and I, what we could do this morning in St. Peter's, we could easily just move past this and get into the content of the verse. Of course, we could. But do you not agree that what we're seeing here from Paul is already helpful for us? Like you, you, you think for a moment about the age in which you and I live. 
We live in a time where truth itself is rather elusive, isn't it? And truth is rather difficult to pinpoint in the modern age. Don't you think? Just take the Israel-Palestine. Yes, he's going there. Uh, Just take the Israel-Palestine conflict for a moment. I think about our experience of that, if, if, if you like. So in recent weeks, thousands and thousands of reports of atrocities and violence have sprung out of the Middle East, haven't they? And, and of course, you know, the, the, the vast majority of these will be accurate and they, they will be true. But what else has come to pass? What else has been proven is some of these reports in the Middle East, they're not just exaggerated. Some reports have been entirely made up and entirely fabricated. And we find ourselves, don't we, kind of unsettled by that? Like, doesn't that undermine the confidence we have even in, in the media? Or, or if you want an, another example, you take that story that you may have heard this week about the politician's son on the radio. is a remarkable story, I think. So there's a radio phone-in, a radio phone-in. And a politician's adult son phones in to this radio, this radio phone-in. And he phones in to criticize his father. And he doesn't want people uh, voting for his dad. And, and, and this adult son breaks down. And he's, he's crying. And he speaks about his dad's misbehavior, his drunkenness, his times of violence. Really criticizing his... And of course, like this is a major thing. This goes viral and everyone's sharing it on Twitter, and it's in TikTok, and it's, it's right around there. And what transpires to be the case? Did you hear the story? The story is that it's all fabricated. Now, this, this adult son isn't the adult son of this politician, and it's an imposter in, in, entirely. The whole thing made up, and, and gone round the world has been viral. And, and you see, we're bombarded by these sorts of things on a daily basis, Aren't we? Uh, we have to come up with a term for it, you know, with fake news. And into this sort of situation, what does God do for us this morning? God brings us to First Timothy. He speaks to us and he reassures us in this world of uncertainty that we can know this for sure, that the gospel that centers on the person and the work of his son. This gospel is trustworthy. This gospel is true. Isn't it the case that as the people of God, we can rejoice because we know that the foundation upon which we stand is certain. It is sure because who is Jesus of Nazareth? He is the way. But he's more than that, isn't he? The Lord Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. We see in this verse the truth of the gospel. Second thing we see here is the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the gospel. Now, I think uh, most people, you can see if this is true of you or not, but I think most people when they're young, uh, they do like to speak in generalizations and speak very generally when they're young. I remember this for myself when I was a teenager, a young teenager, that I used to gravitate uh, towards like stuff, things. And I was constantly told by my parents, Andy, you have to be more precise 
you have to be more detailed. Well, do we not perhaps need to be the same just now? Because, yeah, I think it's exciting for us to be shown something by God here that is trustworthy and true. But what specifically is this gospel that Paul tells you is deserving of, of full acceptance? What is this gospel? Well, I, I want to get the highlighter pen out or a, a big black biro because I, what I want to do is here very briefly underline or underscore or highlight two aspects of this gospel, two aspects that are deserving of our attention. So please get these. Highlighter pen, number one. The gospel centers on a promised individual. You, you have this verse on the screen. Can you see that in the text? In fact, do you notice how it is that Paul speaks about our Lord? Now have a look there. What does he say? Is it, does he speak of Jesus? You notice that he speaks very specifically about Christ Jesus. Now, this is the way that the apostle tends to speak of our Lord in the pastoral epistles. So time and time again, as you're reading 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, time and time again, it's Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. Now, do you see what Paul is doing? He is pointing us to the role and to the office of our, our Lord. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth. He is the anointed of God. Paul is saying to you this morning, remember this. He's the long-promised Messiah of God. Who's this Jesus but the Savior? So that's the first thing we underline, a a promised individual. Also get the second one. The gospel centers on a perfect (laughs) incarnation. A perfect incarnation. And can I do this? Allow me to do this, please. I do want to turn this over to you. I'm really keen that you will walk with me through this little sub-point here. What I want to do just now is to propose a conclusion. And all I would ask of you is that you hear it and see if you agree. Let me propose a conclusion. You see if you here, here's the like, what does Paul say here about Christ Jesus? Do you notice? Christ Jesus, Paul says, he came into the world. Now, here is my conclusion from that. Does that not infer the pre existence of the Son of God? Would you agree with me, St. Peter? That he came into the world. Does that not? suggest that the Son of God, that Christ Jesus, was pre-existent. And, and if you can see that, which I'm sure you can, you can also see why we're in First Timothy 1.15 on Christmas Eve. Because what is Paul the Apostle writing about? What's he speaking about? It's Bethlehem, isn't it? I mean, he, he, he here is writing about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I will speak um, personally for a moment, and I will speak of my folly, and I just tolerate it. Uh, but when I first began uh, preaching, so it's, I, it's, I started working out like 15, 16 years ago, and I started to preach, and I was asked to preach round about Christmas time. And uh, as a much younger bloke, uh, I remember, and I got through it, and at the end of it, I felt like this. I thought, maybe I'm being called into ministry, but if I am, I reckon that pretty quickly I'm going to get 
tired of preaching at Christmas time. That's a terrible thing to say, isn't it? And a terrible thing uh, for a minister to uh, admit. But can you see, I was thinking, if, so you're telling me <laughs> that every year I'm going to have to spend uh, a good whack of time over the Christmas period speaking about the same theme? Every year? I'm going to say, wow, if I have to speak about the incarnation every year, eventually that is going to become tiresome. And, and hear the reality of that, that that happened in no way, shape, or form. How could it? As a congregation at St. Peter's, we've had little babies born to us in the last 12 months, haven't we? As you have held those little dotty wee babies, these newborn babies, to let their mums grab a cup of coffee after a service. Or as you have held a little newborn baby in your family in the years that have gone past, what has been your impression as you've held a little baby? What, what have you thought about? How cute the little baby is, maybe? Some of you? Not all the time. That's That's true. What else have you thought? You've thought at the time, how noisy? You've, you've thought that, definitely. Sometimes you've held a, a lovely little baby and you've thought, how smelly? You, you've thought that, haven't you? But I'm sure all of us who have taken a little baby in our arms and held that little baby have thought like this. We've thought, how fragile, haven't we? You hold a little newborn baby and just how delicate, so delicate that we have to support its head, support its neck, the, even the head itself. It's just so soft. So, so, that's so consider- Doesn't it take your breath away to think that the God who stands reigning over this earth and the God who reigns over this solar system And the God who reigns majestic over this galaxy. And the God who reigns over the other 200 billion far-off galaxies. What has this mighty, majestic God done for us? But he has become one of them. Fragile, delicate, needy, so humbled himself. Friends, a couple of weeks ago, as we followed Abraham's lead, rejoicing to see Christ's day. Do you not think that this Christmas we should follow the Apostle Paul's lead? What does he do in verse 17? Did you notice what he does? He reflects on these things. He writes about these things, and then he bursts into doxology. This Christmas, should the Christian church not do the same thing? As we linger on the miracle and the mystery of the gospel, surely this Christmas we burst into praise. So we see the truth of the gospel. We also see the mystery that Christ Jesus came into the world. Thirdly, consider the heart of the gospel. Um, I would ask you... uh, humbly, please note that heading. I know what it's like. Sometimes when a minister gives a heading or a point, it can go in one ear and out the other. But if you're you're watching on YouTube and you're without a connection to the church, 
or if you're in the room just now, and you're not, you're not a professing Christian, I would, I, would, I would urge you just to note where it is that Paul takes us next, because I would dare to suggest that today right here just now, Paul takes us to the very heart of the gospel. Now, did you hear that? Now, the apostle shows us right now, and what comes next, he shows us the very essence of Christianity. So, so what is that? Well, as we move along in the verse, would you consider what Paul sees as being the uh, intention of the incarnation? Now, look at the verse there. What does he say is the purpose of Bethlehem? Will you read it with me? Uh, Christ Jesus came into the world. Why? Would you notice the next word? Christ Jesus came into the world to to save. He came to save. Isn't that worth us unpacking? Earlier on, I mentioned something of the purpose of this letter. I'm sure you can recall what it was. Paul's writing to help Timothy counter false teaching, erroneous views that were surfacing in the church in Ephesus. You remember I said that? Actually, from the previous section to ours, we get a really clear idea of what that false teaching was. And I want to just throw at you a phrase for you, for you to catch. What, what was the erroneous views? These false teachers in Ephesus... They were taking God's law in the Old Testament. They were misusing God's law. Here's the phrase to catch. And in Ephesus, they were promoting what we would call works righteousness. Now, now we know that, right? We know that phrase, don't we? we? We could define that phrase, I'm sure. What were they doing? These false teachers were saying, yes, Jesus came. But they were saying to the Ephesians, if you want salvation, you have to secure that salvation by your obedience to God's law. That was the false claim. You know, if you want to be saved, yes, Jesus has come into the world. Yes, that's true. But if you want to be saved, you better, you, you better perform. And this might sound flippant. It's not meant to be flippant. But if the false teachers in Ephesus were going to do a kid's talk... They might bring a prop. And they might have a bucket. And they might tell the church in Ephesus, for salvation, you need to fill it up. Do you see? And the false teaching was that you need to add into that bucket piety and works of goodness. You better get some, I don't know, volunteering in a food bank. Get that in the bucket. And some decent, quiet times. Chuck that in the bucket. Uh, some service in the life of church, some climate activism. Get that in the bucket. And they are teaching the church in Ephesus, if maybe if you can fill that bucket to the brim, then maybe God will save you. And maybe God will welcome you into heaven when you die. And then Paul writes, and what does he remind Timothy? He reminds him, no, no. The anatomy of salvation is so different to that. That because even our best acts are tainted 
by our sinful nature, that because our righteousness, even our righteousness, is, is as dirty rags before our God, there had to be a better way, a different way. And I wonder, if you're not a Christian, do you see what it is? Because what did Christ Jesus come into the world to do? Did he come to inspire us to save ourselves? Did he come just to set us an example? What does Paul tell you? Christ Jesus came to save. Christ Jesus came amongst us to secure for us what we by ourselves cannot obtain. He came to do all the work. He came to live our righteousness. He came to die to atone for our sin by his blood at the cross. Isn't it marvelous? What beauty! But also, I think, for the Christians in here, what blessed assurance is found in that? Do you see that, Christian friend? Do you see that tomorrow morning, (laughs) Christmas morning, 2023, you can get out of your bed, Christian friends, And you can know in Christ Jesus that you are eternally secure and safe. You can know that. Why? Because Paul would have you understand it is not about you. And it is not about your obedience to the law. It is not even about the strength of your faith and whether it has been wayward at times and whether you've doubted. It's not about you. Paul would have you understand it's all about Jesus Christ and what he has done. Do we not praise our God for the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full... Christ Jesus came into the world. Why, Christian friends? He came into the world to save you. So we've seen the truth of the gospel and then the mystery of the gospel. Christ Jesus came into the world. We've seen the heart of the gospel to save. We end with the application of the gospel. The application of the gospel. On, on Thursday uh, of this past week, on Thursday night, over at our house down the road, we had the last of our uh, fellowship group meetings in the year. It's Thursday evening, we had our last fellowship group meeting. It was a lovely evening. We didn't do what we usually do. So we didn't have our usual, uh, so much a Bible study. But on Thursday evening, we had a testimony evening. A bit more informal, had a testimony night. And so two people were involved. Uh, So both Chris and uh, Sarah McLean, they, they spoke and they gave their testimony. And we know what that is, don't we? So they didn't just tell us where they were from. They didn't just tell us what they're up to. They didn't even just tell us how they met, although they did tell us that. But they also told us how they came to faith. So they sat there. It was a lovely evening. And we heard how God had worked by his grace to transform both of them. We get the idea. They were speaking personal testimony. I wonder... Did you pick up on the fact that that's exactly what Paul's doing? Did you? So Paul's not just writing to to seek to counter false teaching. He does it all through, in this section, through personal testimony of God's grace in his life. And as he does it, 
He says something that is so intriguing, and you can see it if you look at the end of the verse. <coughs> Read it with me. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and then the apostle Paul says, to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. The apostle Paul says this. Now, that's, that is an astonishing statement, isn't it? The, uh, it may be interesting for you to note that both the I and the foremost are emphatic in the original language. I and for, can you see what Paul's doing? He said, I'm, I'm the chief, <laughs> but I'm the, I'm the chief of sinners. The apostle Paul is saying this, but, but, what, I mean, but what does he mean? See, I don't think this is navel-gazing. Do you think that's what it is? I don't think, it, I don't think it's morbid introspection. Do you think that? I, I don't think it is. Nor is it a cold calculation. Do you see? It's not as if Paul could have taken all the sins of everyone in the world and he's kind of weighed them all up in the balance and he's worked it all out mathematically and he's worked, I've come out, oh wait, am I in second here? No, I've got to come out, it's not that. Can you see what it is? Paul is speaking here from an awoken conscience, isn't he? From an awoken, the more that Paul over these years of his Christian experience, the more he has plumbed the debts of what God has done for him in Jesus Christ, the more he has sensed his utter unworthiness. Isn't that why he cries out, I am the foremost sinner? The more he has looked at Jesus and seen the goodness that God has done for him, the more he he feels his unworthiness. Just look at the tense. Isn't it something? He isn't looking back at his pre-conversion days. He doesn't say, I was the chief of sinners. This is the Apostle Paul, years into his Christian experience, and can still say, I am the foremost sinner. I am the foremost sinner. Now, how how do we do this? How 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 do we draw this to a conclusion? I think what we could do is we could linger on the fact that this here, I think, is the state of mind that should be characteristic for all born-again believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you agree with that? Christian, would you be happy to say that too? I am the foremost sinner. Could you? Just this John Bunyan. Do you know him? That famous author of Pilgrim's Progress. Just as he commandeered this phrase from Paul to assign it to his own autobiography. If you read that, Bunyan's autobiography, grace abounding to the chief of sinners, I dare to suggest that every Christian in here would be happy that that be the title of their own autobiography, wouldn't you? Can't we all say, grace abounding to the chief of sinners? We could linger there. I don't want to. I want to close again by speaking to those who are joining on YouTube or or those in the room who have yet to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, I would ask, 
Can you also sense a parallel in your life to Paul's statement? You're in here just now. Maybe you're bewildered as to why you're tuning in or attending a Christian service. But you could say to yourself, oh, wait a minute, I feel like I am the foremost sinner. That inexplicably you seem drawn to God. Inexplicably you, you, you feel that there's truth here in the gospel. And you look at your life and you, and you think in the, the past errors that you've made and the way that you're living your life just now, yeah, I do feel it. I do feel it's rebellion against God. I do feel like the foremost sinner. If so, now do you see why there is good news at Christmas? Because what does Paul write? Does he write, Christ Jesus came into the world to save the righteous? Did Christ come, did the Son of God come at Christmas time to secure salvation for those who think of themselves as good? No, Paul tells you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save people like you. There is nobody tuning in. There is nobody in the room that is out of bounds and out of the reach of the saving grace of, of Almighty God. Christ came for people like you. Friends, we have looked at 1 Timothy 1.15. Would you agree that it make a cracking phrase to be printed on the inside of a Christmas card? Don't you agree? We open the envelope at Christmas and amongst all the other rubbish that goes on, what would we read? The saying is trustworthy. It is deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you have never grasped and clutched that verse to your heart, do it just now. But if you have never done so before, this Christmas Eve, repent and believe the good news of the gospel of Almighty God. Let's pray.